I'm surprised the number hasn't gotten smaller again. It's amazing. Friday night, you're all here. All right, well, here we go. Oh, look, another water. Um, I, Dave Hatcher said there has been a red phone line going between us, but I have to say, I, I'm always the one asking questions. I don't think he's ever asked a question yet of me, so that was really nice of him to say that. I'm glad John has helped you. <laughs> um, well, uh, so our last talk, obviously, the Huguenots and consent of the governed, and this talk um, is called Samuel Rutherford and the Rule of Law. Th those are really joined topics, so these are the same thing. I, it, it took a little bit of uh, linguistic challenges to divide them all because you can't really separate them. When I teach my government class, we actually teach rule of law really early and consent of the governed a lot later. Um, uh, because this is actually the more important topic. In fact, I might say that each, each talk builds on the last one, and I think we, we're getting more and more foundational as we go on in these. Uh, so I noted last time that, that what began in France didn't mature there, uh, but it matured in England. Uh, so now we're going to pick up and, and move uh, in our history study and move uh, both in time, uh, about a century, and move places. Um, our time now is going to be the 1600s, and our period is going to be the English Civil War. I do hope you know that England had a civil war um, about 200 years before America did. It's important to remember. Um, now, this time period is filled with, with men and women who uh, we often refer to. Uh, we're in a place I think more of you know about than the Huguenots, and maybe, maybe some of you study the Huguenots, but uh, tend to know a lot more about the Puritans. Right? That tends to be a little more known, and, and of course, uh, there's always... Uh, that term pilgrim uh, that's out there and is very loose. Um, but in truth, it was a time when uh, many people were leaving England uh, for safer places, uh, just as people had left France to get to England, then go a century, and then people are leaving England to get away from it. Um, it's uh, not much to France at that time, but, um, but England was not safe at our time. Uh, I, it is worth noting um, my, my, my October this year, we, we've been working actually in the early Middle Ages through people, and uh, so it's been fun to note, okay, this is me probably being far more transparent than is good, but uh, um, I live in California, you might know that people think it's evil there, and uh, it's the great Satan, and and that we have lots of people always saying, get out of there, what are you doing in that state? So it's been fun doing the early Middle Ages because in the early Middle Ages, all these barbarians crashed into the West and everybody that wanted safety went to the East. Um, but, you know, it was the West that had all the exciting stories. The East is just Byzantine Empire. And what did they have but icons? So, so you know, uh, yeah, thank, thank you. Yes, it is. Oh. So people are always uh, leaving dangerous places. This is one of the things you see in history. Um, people are always leaving dangerous places and going to Tennessee or somewhere else in the East. <laughs> but just uh, hear me out here, uh, because you're here and, and I feel a kinship to you because you're in one of the liberal capitals. You know, you're, I do actually enjoy that I think your governor was crazy than mine. So. <laughs> But it's all those that don't leave uh, that, that end up achieving the exciting things in history, right? You never actually follow the people that are leaving for safer places. You don't read histories about those people. You read the people that stay, or you read the people that go to a more dangerous place. That's what you read about. Um, I, one of my favorite quotes is, uh, uh, and I got to use it this year, it's, but it's, it's Augustine at the end of his life. Uh, you might not know this, but his town was, was uh, being attacked by vandals as he was dying. And, uh, and a lot of the clerics he worked with in Hippo were encouraging him to get east where things were safer and sane. And, uh, and he was outraged at them. And he said, what? 
you know, the city of God does not leave her citizens. You know, well done, yes. Captain goes down with the ship, so he stayed. And that's a bit of why we remember Augustine and not all the people that were with him that said he got to get out of town. Amen. So, uh, for today, we're going to talk about Samuel Rutherford, who lived during a very tumultuous time, and he stayed there. Historians estimate that about 100,000 people living at the time um, were, were leaving, some, um, many of them, to, to colonies in America at this time, others to the Netherlands um, and, and other places roundabout. Um, because Rutherford's time was a rough time, a really rough time, and he was really roughed up by it. Now, biblically, biblically, we could call this, to use a term that David likes, a time of trouble, um, or time of great need, on some translations. Uh, so I'm going to get into his life, but I don't want to go there before giving you a passage to think about and doing a little talk on this passage first. So I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 4, start at verse 12, and just read just four verses. So, uh, uh, well, actually, before I do that, let's pray and get into it. Father, thank you again for another session together. Uh, make this profitable for us, that, Father, we would know how to think well about um, what you do in time, and we might know how to station ourselves in you for the challenges of our age. And that, Father, we might, oh, like those that have gone before us, uh, quit ourselves like men. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so here, and again, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to comment on it. Um, but Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter 4. I'm in the wrong place, sorry. All right, Hebrews uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So we're thinking on the word of God in this passage. And there are three propositions that it starts with about the Word of God, that it's alive, that it's a sword, and that it reads us, right? our minds and our thoughts. Now, there is an old debate that wonders if the Word of God here is referring to Jesus or the Bible. Is, that, is, it, is this Scripture or, or um, God incarnate? And I want to start off by just saying, uh, for, as for me and my house, I think that's a stupid separation. Uh, this is a problem given to us by the Bartians, uh, who posit, always posit, a separation between the Bible and Jesus. Um, yeah, biblical language, uh, unlike that, is intentionally ambiguous and, and purposefully overlapping. Uh, for instance, uh, in the book of John, Jesus talks about Scripture as the Word of God, uh, John 10.35. But then if you go back at the beginning of it, uh, John calls Jesus the Word of God in the same book. Right, so, so in John, the same book, the same author uh, uses the same word in two completely different ways. Right? He conflates two designations for one term, one putting on the word of God uh, reference to him referring to the Bible as the word of God. Make sense? Um, now, now, this seems to be an intentional commingling um, of the inscripturated word of God and the incarnate word of God. And Jesus and the Bible, you know, they, they, they commingle. And so we should use the term interchangeably. To hear the Bible is to hear Christ. It is why we stand on Sundays when we read it. And it's why in the next verse, he's going to call the word of God a hymn. All right? And, and so this is where I'm getting to a point in all this. Verse 13. For there is no creature hidden from his sight. Word of God. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now we can read this verse in two ways. 
It's either saying that God is on his throne in heaven uh, looking over all the world and looking at men's motives and, and discerning them. God's eyes are in heaven. Um, but I don't think that's the correct interpretation since we were just one verse before talking about the word of God uh, that, 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 that we read. Uh, the eyes of God in that sense um, is looking at us. We, we could even say that this might be poetic. Looking at us from up from the word of God as we read it. The eyes of God, in that sense, are, are looking out of the word. Make sense? Uh, meaning, we don't just read scripture, but it reads us. Uh, we, we're being read while we turn the pages. Make sense? Uh, he is dividing our thoughts, or he's dividing your thoughts to you as you read his thoughts to you. Uh, there is no book quite like it, uh, for in the pages of the word of God, God is works on us, and you can say from scripture or from his throne in heaven, but he works. Verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, you might not realize, but in, I'm just reading four verses, far less than last time, but, but Hebrews moves fast, really, really fast. It's incredible. I mean, in just those three verses I've read so far, we have moved from the idea of uh, cutting uh, joints and marrows to sympathizing with us. You know, that we're being uh, consoled in our weakness by one who call, is called a sword. Right? It moves fast, this verse. Uh, I mean, if this is a Christ, and I do think it is, um, Christ it manages in, in just three verses to be terrible and tender, uh, to be to be both high and humble. Um, he, he both cuts us and he cradles us. He, he both injures us, cleaving us, it says, and he nurtures us. Um, um, he, he, we know that he'll judge us and we know that he died for us. I mean, this is just really quick movement in all of this about how infinite this man was um, in, in his personality and all that he can do. And then the writer ends because of this with a single or exhortation. Verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in times of need. And there's that expression, times of need. The writer of Hebrews puts an awesomely large Christ before us to encourage us uh, to run to a throne of grace so that we may be able to handle our times of need. Now, this passage I th is one I cannot read without thinking of our man tonight, Samuel Rutherford. Um, he managed to pass through a great time of need in his life, he is a scholar, a preacher, a teacher, a pastor, a political scientist, a powerful communicator, a political exile. Uh, to this day, his devotional classic, uh, The Loveliness of Christ, still moves souls. Uh, to this day, his political classic, Lex Rex, still moves statecraft. Um, of his pastoral nurture, Charles Spurgeon said of Rutherford's writings, quote, they are the nearest thing to inspiration which can be found in the writings of mere men. That's quite a praise. Um, of his political prowess, well, in Charlottesville, Virginia today, free legal service can be had from eternities that work uh, through the network known as the Rutherford Institute, referring to this man. Um, and their motto is, uh, it is our job to make the government play by the rules of the Constitution. Lovely motto. Um, but notice, both of those are Rutherford heritages, right? So, so Rutherford's legacy is broad. I mean, and, and it's still potent to this day. Now, 
we can see uh, the truth of what the writer of Hebrews is saying, you know, uh, the broader uh, cr the Christ you have, the larger, the more expansive the Christ you have in view, the bolder you can be for all that life throws before you. Um, Rutherford's life needed this kind of boldness. Um, perhaps if you think back in history class, I, I, I always, context, 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 I always want to get people in their context. Um, so you know the, uh, the terrible turmoil of England in the reign of Bloody Mary. I hope if you don't, uh, J.C. Ryle has an inestimably good book about it, and I can tell you about it later. Uh, Mary died after five years of rule, and then Anne Boleyn's uh, daughter, Elizabeth, became queen, Queen Elizabeth, um, and that is considered England's golden age. Um, this is Spencer's fairy queen who reigned from 1558 to 1560. Oh, I can't remember. Um, uh, but anyways, uh, England became a haven for the Huguenots uh, from France, and then she died, and when she died, Rutherford was about three years old. Um, she had no children or siblings to crown, so the crown passed to her cousin in Scotland, who was um, slightly French, uh, James VI of Scotland, and he became the first king in England with the name James. Um, he's where we get the King James version of the Bible from. Great Bible, terrible man. Uh, I do love the King James Version, uh, but the King James Version always holds one suspicion for me, and I want to tell you what my suspicion is of it for you. Um, I, I love the text that comes from my use it. I use the New King James Version. But James allowed the commissioning of this Bible um, if the committee promised to make no references to tyranny in it. Um, so unlike, say, the Geneva Bible, um, the King James Version was, uh, was made so that all references to tyranny would be taken out of it in, in notes and, 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 and the way they translated it. So there you go, King James Version. Um, now, political turmoil ensued with uh, James's crowning. Now, unlike Mary, who had an agenda, when she came to power, she just wanted to get rid of all the Protestants, James was just selfish. That wasn't, there was no agenda. So the Golden Age continued, at least in places like literature, uh, but the church struggled because of him. Uh, five years after becoming king, um, Puritans uh, left for Holland. Five years before his death, Puritans left for America. Both of those groups were, were trying to escape this man, in sense of this guy. Uh, James died on March 27, 1625, and things went from difficult to dictatorial with his death. Uh, James's son, Charles, took the throne. Charles I's main aim was to tame, uh, trim, and finally terminate the English parliament, uh, ruling as a monarch without any bothersome checks and balances. A lot of this is because he's looking at France, and he's like, man, I like the way they do it in France, and uh, wanted to do that in England. And that meant controlling all things, even the pulpit, uh, so, soon after coming to power, uh, our man, Samuel Rutherford, who up to this point had been a simple small-town pastor in the borderlands of Scotland, whose whole life consisted of ministering to farmers, uh, suddenly found himself standing before the highest court in the land, the Court of High Commission, uh, facing charges. I do wonder at times if we would even know about him otherwise. I mean, he's everywhere known now, but I think the only thing that made him knowable in the end was was his life got interrupted by trouble. Um, the, the, his trouble propelled him into all the critical places that follow. Uh, so, you know, take a lesson from that. Often our troubles can work a, a man or a church a lot of good. Now, for Rutherford, uh, as things, uh, at first his, his charges were dropped. He, he was let go. But six years later, he was there again, standing before the same court, this time not for preaching views that offended the government, but for publishing views that offended the government. Now, 
we can hear about time periods when, when sermons can put people into court and think, man, what backward times. I'm glad we don't leave then. But my friends, those are our times too. In 2014, Houston, Texas city officials subpoenaed sermons from the area pastors um, to see if they were criticizing the new city ordinance at the time, 2014, uh, that allowed men who identified as women to use the women's restroom. So notice these things are still happening. Um, coercive governments cannot handle free pulpits. Um, so these things still happen. So small town pastor Samuel Rutherford was before the highest courts in the land, first for a sermon, then for a book. A heavy punishment was put down upon him at this time, defrocking. And that was something that the government could do. He was ordered to leave his pulpit, and not only to leave his pulpit, but lest he could still be influential, to leave his town. So he was allowed to other places, but he could not go to his town or his pulpit. And it looked like uh, uh, Rutherford's ministry was coming to an end. And people wrote to him, and, and their writings uh, write like that. And, and these letters are what uh, Spurgeon called near inspiration. Uh, Spurgeon was not referring to the loveliness of Christ, which is made later. Um, and and these, these letters are wonderful if, if you like to actually, uh, the loveliness of Christ, if you've read it, is wonderful for it. It just takes the best statements he makes. But if you actually read the letters, you get the political, uh, everything he's writing is about the politics of his day. And so it's really fun if you like that kind of thing. Um, but to one congregant wondering why God had done this to him, uh, Rutherford, ever the pastor, uh, said, Sir, let us be faithful and care for our own part, which is to do and suffer for him. And lay Christ's part on Christ and leave it there. See, duties are our part, but events are God's part. When our faith goes to meddle with events and to hold court upon God's providences and begins to say, why are you doing this or that? We lose ground. We have nothing to do there. It is our part to see how we may be approved by him in what he sends. To a lady who wondered why God was not saving Rutherford about hiding uh, his face from Rutherford, he wrote, Madam, the hiding of God's face is wise love. His love is not reasonless when it gives you no other pillow than his breast and his bosom to lie on. Otherwise, his bairns, children, must often have the frosty cold. Our pride must have winter weather to rot it. To another who heard that nobles who had promised to, to get Rutherford out of exile and get him back into his pulpit, but then they later reneged when uh, they would lose, have lost money, um, he wrote, The great men who acted for me are all drying up like winter brooks of water. I see that they tire of me. But believe me, I am most gladly content that Christ breaks all my idols to pieces. It puts a new edge on my blunt love of Christ. I mean, this man was being exiled for political reason, but notice his pastoral edge only got sharper in it all. I mean, he goes on and on, writing to one, if contentment were here, then, then heaven would not be heaven. To another, Christ charges me to believe his daylight at midnight. Or, or in encouraging another, he writes, his cross is the sweetest burden that ever I bear. It is as much a burden as wings are a burden to a bird or sails to a ship. Burdens that in the end carry me to my harbor. I mean, if you've ever read the book, The Loveliness of Christ, uh, it, it, 
almost not been out of print in 120 years. It is a collection of, of hundreds of his letters uh, and, and just taking out the gems of them. It's wonderful. Uh, if you like his actual letters, which I encourage you, it's a lot thicker, but um, it's fun to see how he was thinking these thoughts in just national scandals. It is amazingly prescient about how much it moves together. But the loveliness of Christ is the best of it. You can read that. So, so diligent was Rutherford's correspondence uh, at this time, writing while he was in exile, that one historian wrote that his writing desk, desk was, quote, perhaps the most effective and widely resounding pulpit in old Christendom. I mean, funny, isn't it, that, that the government took away his pulpit so God didn't? Gave him a bigger one with even further reach. But neither did God let things stay that way. Back in England, Charles was making a mess of everything. Before exiling Rutherford, he disbanded Parliament, and then he taxed England without Parliament, and a cry went up, uh, no taxation without representation. Uh, we tend to think that phrase started in America. It's 100 years older than America. Um, was um, you know, in England before it came to our shores. In Scotland, which... By the way, American War for Independence was actually about, we want to be treated as Englishmen. You know, these battles have already been fought. Now, in Scotland, the king was also making trouble. He was in the bishop's war. Uh, Scotland wasn't having it, a bishop, um, that is. Uh, they were saying, 1 Peter 2.25, the church has one bishop, Jesus Christ. Uh, so, there you go. Um, and so the king decided to force a bishop on the church and use an army to do it. And thus, uh, he didn't have enough personal soldiers, so he needed Parliament again to raise him an army. And so, after 10 years, he reconvened Parliament. And then Charles told Parliament that their one job was to raise him an army. So, Parliament met. But before making an army for the king, they made a new law that if the king should disband them again, Parliament did, could reconvene without royal approval. Um, Charles was incensed by this, so he used his, his uh, guards uh, to attack Parliament, and then Parliament did raise an army, but this time to defend themselves against the king. And so began the English Civil War. And for it, Parliament asked for Scotland's help. We need help. And so Scotland agreed if England would agree to end this idea of forcing the country under the Church of England uh, and under its, its, its format. So for political reasons, uh, a church assembly was called, one that would make a document that um, could find scriptural unity for the, these English Anglicans, these Scottish Presbyterians, and all those independent nonconformists we nowadays would call Congregationalists. All, a document that could just get them all happy. And it was a political document, but this document was made in London's Westminster Chapel, uh, and this is why we call it the Westminster Confession of Faith. It, it would put the British church not under the king, as Henry VIII had wanted, nor under bishops, as Charles wanted, but under a constitution of scripture. Scotland was uh, to send commissioners to help England forge this. And interestingly, that one-time small-town pastor who had made a name for himself in exile by writing pastoral letters was sent, Samuel Rutherford. So for 1,163 sessions over seven years, the greatest three theologians in three kingdoms met, and their work was wide-ranging. But if you want to know um, what Rutherford's major focus was, it was the shorter catechism, uh, which starts with that golden opening, uh, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I mean, that's straight Rutherford thinking right there. But all this beauty was done, and it should always be remembered, in the middle of a war. In 1646, the Parliament's army captured the king, 
uh, imprisoned him at Hampton Court Palace, and then he famously escaped. He was recaptured, and then lest he try to escape again, uh, the, the general of the army uh, hand-selected a parliament without the broader parliament sanction, conducted a trial, found him guilty, and chopped off his head. Um, then things unraveled. Uh, that general who'd conducted this, uh, this special chosen court case um, then had a military coup, used the army to run the country, and when parliament interfered with him, he disbanded them too, um, and so by a king and then by the man they tried to get to save them from the king, they were both times disbanded. And after 12 years, this, this, um, this man died, and, and what was parliament to do? Military dictator uh, at the time seemed worse than a medieval monarch. Nothing seemed good. So with good British policy, they decided to choose the lesser of two evils, and they invited the beheaded king's exiled son back to the throne, hoping that he would understand that, you know, we chopped off your dad's head. <laughs> cool down, young man. But, but it didn't work. I mean, it was stupid. Uh, the hope proved false. Uh, Charles son, Charles II, came back to the throne with a vengeance. All the old evils returned, including Rutherford being exiled for yet another book. The new king held to his father's doctrine of uh, rex est lex loquens. The king is the law speaking. A clever way of saying England is not ruled by constitutions like the Magna Carta or representative bodies like Parliament. King is ruled by a man. When I speak, I am the law. Lex est uh, rex loquens. Did I say that right? Rex est lex loquens, yes. Um, Samuel Rutherford's book, however, uh, was called Lex Rex, uh, The Law is King, um, flipping Charles's policy. Rutherford wrote a Bible study on how God created uh, a country, Israel, by putting its government under law, that the law was over the king, and that subjects rightly resisted the king in order to obey the law in Israel. It was a Bible study, and it was a Bible study that created a political science. Some of the best parts of it. He says, didn't God initially prompt Jeroboam to resist Rehoboam's increased taxation? Yes, 1 Kings 11. Governments are granted power conditionally and can be resisted righteously, he writes. Didn't Azariah the priest rebuke King Uzziah for offering sacrifices? Yes, 2 Chronicles 26. Civil governments have limited scope of power and can be rebuked when going beyond it. Did an armed militia under a priest execute Queen Athaliah? Yes, 2 Kings 11. There is a biblical duty to resist, even at times with arms, uh, governments acting unlawfully. In 44 questions, Rutherford put forward the Bible's political science, Lex Rex. His ideas nowadays are termed the rule of law, after the title. The ideas later assembled in the Declaration of Independence were, were to that degree, Rutherford's concepts scooped out of the pages of Scripture. And perhaps, of course, uh, Rutherford had read the Vindiciae Contra Tyrannus. There is no reference to it. Uh, Rutherford's work uh, is organized quite differently, and, and it's three times thicker. Uh, but the Vindiciae was published 65 years earlier. Scotland and France had a literary involvement even more than France and England, and many Huguenots moved to Scotland um, when they relocated France because uh, the, the royal family was Scottish, so there's more French being spoken in places of power. 
So it's very likely uh, that the Vindicii influenced Rutherford. But even if not, it, it was in the air, so to speak, and it was uh, as men began trying to understand these things that had happened a century earlier in, in France. Uh, modern history books say these ideas came from, from people like John Locke uh, or, or that um, pervert Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Uh, it'd be nice for secular civil Rousseau and Christians have bought it. Uh, a friend of mine uh, my church gave me a book from his U.S. history class at Masters University, written by the professor there, and it says this on page 217. I do not necessarily see the Declaration of Independence is anti-Christian, but it is clearly non-Christian. It is clearly not Christian, and it is not biblical. And then he goes on to explain how it all came from John Locke, and Rutherford is never mentioned in the whole book, and you can't find him in the concordance. He's nowhere. Uh, you know why? We're getting a lot of problems we're in is because Masters University, which uh, is one of the more faithful Christian colleges in my state, uh, one we've sent a number of our, uh, our kids to, uh, doesn't have this straight. Yeah, this is some time ago, the great corpus of Protestant political truth was, was put in the paper shredder. And we just know, lobotomized ourselves politically. But other ages understood the origins of our ideas. Uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, who came to America in the 1830s to study why democracy was working in America and why it was failing in Europe, and especially in his country of France, said, said that it all had to do with Rutherford and his ilk. And one of my favorite uh, quotes that actually this year my students just had a test on, he says, Puritan doctrine contains its own political science. Let me say that again because it's so good. Uh, political doctrine contains its own political science. I mean, I mean, this Frenchman, who was not Puritan, uh, was, nor did, is it even clear in his writings that he really believed in Christianity. Uh, he knew the origins, though. I mean, he came to America and he says, it's just Puritan. It's just so ridiculously Puritan here. And he goes on in that same chapter, <laughs> in the fun section if you ever read it, to, to explain how crazy uh, the early constitutions of each of the states are. He thinks Connecticut is the most bizarre one. He says, because it, it just seems they opened the book of Deuteronomy and just started writing out what their laws are going to be. <laughs> and he thinks it's crazy. Oh. Well, back to our story. All right. uh, when Charles II became king, he, he wasn't simply content to have Rutherford exiled. You know, once they let him go, then they exiled him. He said, we got we, we to gotta execute this guy this time. Um, so Charles had Rutherford's Lex Rex burned publicly in London by the royal hangman. Um, and then he was summoned to court. Uh, Rutherford was 61 years old at the time, and his health was failing. And so he wrote back with wonderful sharp wit. That's not something you get from him in his earlier writings, but it is fun that it was there. It really showed up in his later days. Uh, you might have heard it, but he said uh, to the king's summon, I have got a previous summons before a superior judge and judiciary. And I must answer that summons first and before your court day arrives. Uh, it will be a court few kings and great men have ever come to. I mean, how, how's that for a comeback? Uh, he then died. He did die before the summons day. His tombstone in St. Andrew's Chapel is there, and it still bears the wonderful inscription. What tongue, what pen or skill of man can famous Rutherford commend? His learning justly raised his fame, true godliness adorns his name. He did converse with things above, acquainted with Emmanuel's love. More orthodox he was and sound, and many errors did confound. For Zion's king and Zion's cause, 
and Scotland's covenanted laws. Most constantly, he did contend until his time was at an end, and then he went to the full fruition of that which he had seen in visions. What I think is amazing about that inscription is where do you categorize that? I mean, is it praising him for theological acumen or for political acumen or uh, for spiritual insight? I mean, it's all of them. It's just all mixed together in that. I mean, Rutherford's life stretched so broadly, you know, from, from devotional epicenter of his pastoral letters to theological powerhouse and the halls of Westminster Chapel to the political shrewdness of, of Lex Rex and, and, and dealing with politicians. I mean, how do you sum up a man like that, who, whose heart is so soft, uh, but whose mind is so sharp and, and just has such a forceful effect on every area of life he touches? And I actually want to answer that question, and I want to answer that through Hebrews 4, uh, with which we started with. Uh, by noticing the most important point of Rutherford's life and actually making a connection to things I talked about before, just before this, uh, with, with the consent of the governed and knowing your heritage. And, and the first one, the first thing to just observe with, with Rutherford is this, and, and it's very simple. Uh, the word of God is our rule. The word of God is our rule. And the very obvious thing to see in his life is there never would have been a stable understanding of the rule of law in society if there hadn't first been a stable understanding of the rule of scripture in the church and in this man's life. See, see the one begets the other, right? In the 1500s in England, uh, England saw men fighting for the authority of scripture. That's what all the battles of the 1500s are. That's why men are burning in the 1500s. They're fighting for the, 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 the authority of Scripture in the church. And then go a century later, and it's the 1600s in England, and we see men fighting for the rule of law in the land. Right? Because the one begets the other. Right? It begets the other. Yeah, because it is those things we do before the face of God that, 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 that we are then able to do before parliaments and congresses and kings. I mean, because Rutherford was able to apply the word of God uh, to himself, because the nation had applied it in the churches, therefore, then, a generation later, they could apply it to the nation. Right? The one begets the other. Our section of Hebrews today tells us that the, the scripture, as God's word, searches us. It, it divides us up and discerns our hearts. That a man who reads the Bible knows, as he's reading, he's being read, is being inspected. Now, the concept of the rule of law is ancient, going back, obviously, to the Hebrews, but uh, more proximately to England. You know, King Alfred used biblical laws, not royal pronouncements from his throne to make his kingdom. Stephen Langdon, the man who made all the chapters in your Bible, uh, he uh, also is the one who forced um, King John to obey a higher law in writing the Magna Carta. Uh, so this concept, the rule of law, is ancient, but this phrase, the rule of law, in England starts in this period. And Samuel Rutherford gave it its most enduring explanation. But it is worth noting that the man who gave that political concept its greatest explanation was a theologian. In fact, a pastor, uh, and, and he put wings on that phrase. 
For, for we fight the best battles for the rule of law in our country when we fight for, for the rule of God in, in our hearts and in our lives, in our families and in our churches. The honoring of God's word as our law is our education into honoring the rule of God outside, out the doors, outside the walls of the church. James 4.12 says there is one lawgiver. There is one lawgiver. And we know he's talking about scripture because he calls it the perfect law of liberty. The point is this. Understanding law begins in this book. We must have the word of God as our rule if we're ever going to have the rule of law anywhere else in society. It just takes a generation of doing it faithfully and you see it survive. And then the second thing to see also from Hebrew is that the word of God must cut both ways to do this. What is wonderful about Rutherford is that a man who is remarkable for his political perception was an outstanding pastor to others and what's really going on in the loveliness of Christ to himself. There's every reason in what Rutherford writes to feel sorry for himself. Nobody else is being mistreated in those letters. He is. He's the one being exiled. And he's the whole time arguing with people that are writing to him, oh, the terrible things happening to me, they're good. (laughs) They're good for me. I mean, most of us would, I know I would, pet me, make me feel better for my miseries. But he was a man who knew not only how to preach the word, but to stand before it himself. He could not only apply it to his national problems, or rather say it this way, he could apply it to his national problems because he had applied it to his own problems and applied it well. I mean, Hebrew tells us that the word of God is a two-edged sword, and that phrase means it must cut both ways when it's used. Uh, It can be incisive on the problems out there, uh, and it can be incisive on the problems in here, right there. Uh, We we read, no creature is hidden from its sight, which we can take to mean that Scripture opens every creation to him as well as every creation to us. We can use it on the problems but it always cuts backwards, always cuts backwards. I mean, so that's why it's hard to see where Rutherford is put in, in intellectual history. I mean, is he a devotional writer? Is he a systematic theologian? Is he a shrewd political thinker? Well, he's all of them, but the reason why he's all of them is because he knew how to wield the th- sword, and he knew it was wielded on him. It was a two-edged sword. Rutherford could teach the Bible so boldly to his age with such incisive words because he used the Bible so incisively on himself. I mean, he sat under its edge. And so he's able to use its edge wisely uh, to defend Scotland in his age. For he had been trimmed by that edge constantly, so God trusted him to use it in a powerful way. He very wisely said once this, and this is one of the best things I think he said about our concept we're talking about here. He said, take every word in Scripture as spoken to yourself. When you read the word thundering against the sins of Israel, think God means my sins. I am the person aimed at in that word. Uh, Do not hate them. Uh, Do I not hate them that hate thee? Say to yourself, Do not I abhor iniquity? Do not I grieve for sin? What he is saying right there in all of that is do exactly what 1 Corinthians tells us to do. These things were written for our benefit, right? He's talking about things in Israel. I mean, that's Rutherford's secret sauce. 
He read the Bible that way. It's always a word to him. Always a word to him. And because he read it that way, he was able to always use the word in the other direction, too. God's word cut both ways. And if we see that, uh, then perhaps we can see uh, that where the word cuts, it heals. Uh, after the writer of Hebrews tells us that the word of God is a sword and that it cuts, he tells us that the word of God is also a high priest who sympathizes with our weakness. And I always think that's just amazing that those two things are so close there in the Bible. And one of the wonders of the Puritans, like Samuel Rutherford, is that he managed to capture both these aspects and, and, and make them so close together in his writing. I mean, he manages to marry a robust view of the sovereignty of God uh, that God controls all things, and a robust view of the sympathy of God, that he cares for what I'm enduring, that, that God is, is not simply wise and all-powerful, but that God is all-pity. Thus, he says things like this. This is from letter 158. It's not in the loveliness of Christ, but he says to a man called Carlton, he writes, I find... Oh, actually, no, I'm wrong. This one is from Loveliest of Christ. I find it most true that the greatest temptation out of hell is to live without temptations. If my water should stand, it should stagnate. Faith is better for the free air and for the sharp winter storms that rock its face. Grace withers without adversity. The devil is but God's master fencer to teach us how to handle our weapons. I mean, think about that. Well, why does... The word of God need to cut at you because the devil is God's master fencer teaching us how to handle our weapons. Or take this from letter 76 to Robert Gordon. Why should I be shocked that the plow of my Lord has made deep furrows in my soul? I know that he is no idle farmer. He intends a crop, and so he puts the plow to me. I mean, imagine that. No, notice in each of them, he, he, there's always an edge to what he sees God doing. And yet, he's encouraged by that edge. Or, or this, to Lady um, Robertland. However it be, if God would come in, I shall not dispute the matter. Even if he makes a hole in me or breaks my locks, I should be content that Christ and I met. I find cross shapes Crosses shape us to his own image, cutting away pieces of our corruption. So, Lord, cut. Lord, carve. Lord, wound. Lord, do anything that perfects thy Father's image in us. One of the amazing things I find about Rutherford is that idea of a sharp edge is almost in everything he writes. This is why I started by telling you Hebrews 4 is just his passage in my mind. He always talks about the edge of God's knife and always talks about it as something comforting him, bettering him. See, not only must we know that the word of God rules, not only must we know that the word of God cuts our sins as quickly as national sins, but we must know that where God cuts, he cuts because he's a cancer doctor. He cuts out what's killing us. He is, after all, after health and life. I mean, it shocks me, as I hope it shocks you, that the man who preached the rule of law loudest and, and is perhaps most politically powerful, the man who preached the, the rule of law loudest and best to the king of his age, uh, the man whom God let cut the king was a pastor who uh, knew how to be cut and knew how to heal from it. 
Uh, Rutherford, like the writer of Hebrews, could preach with the same mouth a sharp word and could preach in the same writing a gentle word. And I do really think there's a lesson in this. It might just be that before God gives the church of this generation uh, the hammer needed to break the stone slab hearts of, of our country, it might just be that God is first giving those churches a bite of the blade themselves. I mean, we need to know that edge, like Rutherford did. And we need to know that edge before we can wield it well ourselves for what's out there. We need to know priests. We need to know the priest who sympathizes with our weakness like Rutherford did before we can boldly use that same blade on the world around us and use it in a way that we say this heals by using it. It's not just vindictiveness. I mean, this is the shape of Rutherford's life. God made his mouth a sharp, double-edged sword. He made that same mouth that was like that from the most gentle man I think you can find in pastoral writings. I mean, he both could speak of strokes and suffering and comfort and sharp edges. For we must all come to believe that where the word of God cuts, it intends to heal. We can only come to believe that when we know that cut because we've been cut by it. And that's not a bad thing. Well, I hope I've made my point in that, but the, the, the point, um, to just sum it up, is one of the most amazing things when we think about political doctrines and political science is as you look at history, they keep being born by pastors who have to deal with the word of God in real life. We are a wealthier people, but we have been made wealthy by the word of God. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for these words, and Father, bless uh, the places where these things fall short. Make us understand, but Father, help us see. Oh, your kind providences in time and space. The Father, you have been working good in us by the same means which you break sin and break our enemies. Father, it is amazing in all these things that you can do it all. And I am reminded of that phrase, Lord, uh, that you taught the Puritans, that the same sun which melts the butter hardens the clay. Father, thank you that you are constant. But Father, uh, treat us in all of that constancy as we need to be treated for the situations we are in. Bless us in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.